You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everyone and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you? I hope you're well. My throat is about to, <laughs> to, um, to give me a little bit of a problem. So you want to back off? I'm, I'll take it from here. I'm, I'm doing well apart from that. Just a sec. Continue. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, I'll, I'll take it from here. How's that? Today's show is being taped, so no opportunity for calling in. But uh, please do welcome us. Uh, please do welcome us. Please do uh, follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on all three locations. And if you would like to email us, um, please do so at thh at radiomaria.ca. And of course, you can subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all your favorite podcast platforms. And uh, as somebody noted to us, the Health Hub on um, on these platforms are, there are no spaces between the letters. So it's the Health Hub, no space. So you can find us there. Um, and you can also find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca and on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. We have a very interesting guest on our show today, um, Dr. Andy Chen. Um, it, it's, it's going to be a great conversation. He's just a, a delightful person, a, a wonderful person to talk to, very laid back. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy listening to the show. Dr. Chen is a native of Maryland. Uh, he earned a master's of science in biomaterials engineering at the John Hopkins University and a doctorate in medicine at the John Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. He completed his residency in orthopedic surgery at the Hospital for Joint Disease in New York, where he also completed a fellowship in orthopedic research at the Muscular Skeletal Research Center in New York. Following this, he completed a fellowship in sports medicine at the Stedman Hawkins Sports Medicine Clinic in Vail, Colorado. Dr. Jen practices at the Alpine Clinic in Franconia, New Hampshire, and is certified in orthopedic surgery by the American Board of Orthopedic Surgeons with subspecialty certification in sports medicine. Dr. Chen is the Chief Medical Officer for the United States Nordic Sport, a team physician for the United States Olympic Committee, and a team physician for the United States Ski and Snowboard Association. Dr. Chen is a fellow of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons and the American Orthopedic Society of Sports Medicine. And in addition to numerous published articles, book chapters, and books, Dr. Chen has presented research numerous um, research on numerous international stages, national and regional forums, and has been featured on WMUR's New Hampshire Chronicle, several television interviews and presentations, and on radio interviews nationwide. 
He has assisted in the care of several professional sports teams and was a physician for Madison Square Gardens in New York City. Dr. Chen currently resides in New Hampshire with his wife, a specialist in plant-based nutrition, and his two teenage children. Fascinating man, and as I said, um, just a pleasure to listen to. You just want to, you know, sit back with a nice cup of coffee and listen to him. Um, Some of the things we'll be talking about on Learning Points are, can an elite athlete be a top performer on a plant-based diet? Is a plant-based diet suitable for all athletes? And why is there confusion about determining adequate protein levels still to this day? So everybody, please stay with us. We will be back in a few minutes to talk to Dr. Chen. I'm not about to give up because I heard you say there's going to be brighter days. There's going to be brighter days. I won't stop. I'll keep my head up. No, I'm not here to stay. There's going to be brighter days. It's gonna be brighter days. I just might bend, but I won't break. As long as I can see your face. When that won't play wrong, and right keeps going wrong, and I can't seem to find my way. I know where I found, so I won't let it drag me down. No, I'll keep dancing anyway. I'm gonna go. are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. 
Welcome back, everybody. As mentioned, today's show once again is being taped, so no opportunity for calling in to speak to Dr. Chen. But if you have any questions for him, please feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. And do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on all three locations. Dr. Chen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, you're a very interesting guest. Um, we are right now, I mean, this recording will be coming out, uh, you know, in a month or so, but we're in the middle of winter here. Are you having a hiatus from your, uh, your work with your ski team? Oh, we're actually not. Uh, believe it or not, we're actually busier than ever. Um, we currently have several athletes that are positive for COVID and they're mm -hmm. abroad. So these are issues that I'm going to have to deal with later on today. Um, the um, International Ski Federation, or FIS, is trying to make a reasonable season of it anyway. We are dealing with multiple cancellations and things of the sort, but um, we're making a good go at it and trying to keep our team healthy. We are really malleable through all this, aren't we? It's amazing how people, I, I'm so impressed with how everybody that I have talked to from, I mean, you're, you're the first person that I've talked to related to a professional um, athletic organization, but just in all aspects, people are so, have been so adaptable to this. It's just, I continually am uh, amazed at this and, and congratulations for being able to, to keep putting out there and, and having the team going. What are the ages of your athletes approximately? Uh, they range anywhere from 16 to perhaps about 25 or so. Um, I, I do believe you're right, though. I think the fact that we're having a season at all is amazing. I think mm -hmm. it's a testament to the resilience of the human spirit. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's, these, these are trying times. And, and it's, it's amazing to me that these athletes, coaches, and officials are willing to put themselves out there uh, when we're going through all this. And whereas a lot of us have chosen to be safe and hunker down at home, you know, a lot of these guys are still traveling from venue to venue. And uh, I suppose we can debate the safety of it. But, you know, in general, I think the um, World Cup has been um, uh, has done pretty well in terms of infections. They've done very well with establishing protocols and setting bubbles. And so uh, even though we are dealing with a few infections, it's it's remarkably low in incidence compared to what we would probably expect. Mm -hmm. Uh, interest, you know, it's, it's very interesting to me. Did you start off your career hoping to be associated with the U.S. Nordic ski team? <laughs> or how did you <laughs> fall into this? Is it so, it's such a prestigious uh, place to land? Uh, you, you know, I, I didn't. Um, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., playing uh, fairly standard sports, basketball, football, lacrosse. Um, it really wasn't until I did my fellowship in Vail, Colorado, that I got involved with the ski team. Um, in 2008, I was named the head team physician of the men's ski jumping team. And from then, it sort of took off from there. And now, now I'm the uh, chief medical officer for USA Nordic uh, in charge of our uh, Nordic teams and our effort in the Olympics. So that's amazing. It really is amazing. So you've, you've met up with some, some very professional and highly recognized names here in Canada, I'm sure. Um, yeah. And um, I, I know that you've, you've put me in touch with another athlete who just seems wonderful, but um, uh, congratulations. Congratulations to Thank you. Thank you very much. Now our conversation getting to circling back to what we're here to talk about is kind of your transition to a plant-based diet and how, 
um, this really has had such a profound impact on your life. So talk to us about your diet before you decided to, to transition to plant-based. So I grew up, as I said, in the suburbs of DC and really just eating the standard American diet. You know, I uh, grew up my, and in fact, I was probably more meat heavy than anything else. Uh, my parents were immigrants from Taiwan. Um, they grew up uh, not indigent, but, um, you know, by, my mother's father was a dentist, so they did pretty well by Taiwan standards. But, you know, in the 1940s, compared to the United States, they were, they were pretty, uh, um, I don't want to say backwards, but uh, not as industrialized as the United States. And so they, they grew up with a sense that um, that meat is 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 a sign of wealth. It's a sign of health. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when they came to this country and became professionals, when my brother and I were being raised, I mean, we had meat at every single meal because they thought that that correlated with good health and strength. And then when I was in high school, I played a lot of collision sports like uh, like football and lacrosse. And, you know, in general, it was more favorable to be bigger and stronger and heavier than the other individual uh, and uh, or other players on the field. And so you know, I grew up with a sense that I wanted to be as big and strong as possible. And, uh, and that's how I ate. And I uh, lifted heavy weights. And, you know, I, I topped out at probably about 230 pounds, and I was pretty strong. Um, and that's sort of how we lived our lives. Um, you know, I, I mentioned when I took over as um, head team physician of the US ski jumping team, you know, th this was like a mind blown moment, um, because I now started interfacing with with athletes who didn't want to be as big and strong as possible. In fact, they wanted to be as strong as possible, but as light as possible. Mm -hmm. So this was a total uh, paradigm shift for me. Um, it was one of these things, though, where I felt like, well, th that's what they need to do to be the athletes that they need to be, but that has little to do with me. So I continue to eat the standard American diet, even though my athletes were uh, trying to minimize caloric intake. And the interesting thing is at the time, I started to realize that it was the younger athletes who ate more like I did. But then again, the younger athletes are between 16 and 18 and they have the metabolism of a teenage boy. And, and so, you know, they, they, they can essentially eat what they want and stay, you know, fit the entire time. Uh, the interesting thing was I started to notice that the more veteran athletes or the more successful athletes um, really limited things like meat and dairy intake. They would say things like, well, I don't like to eat a lot of meat in the mornings because it, it really just sits in my gut for a long time and affects my training and performance. And, and I don't really like to take milk in the morning or before a competition because I'm concerned that it's going to bloat me and affect my performance. So the interesting thing is that the more veteran, more successful athletes tended to really minimize meat and dairy and concentrate more on a plant-based diet, whether or not they recognize it at all. Um, and so I, I started to take notice of it, but more in a way that I could help the other athletes, not really so much for myself. Um, I, I think that really changed for me, though, in 2013, my sister-in-law was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 36. Um, and so being the physician in the family, I did a lot of research. And one thing that really stood out for me, and, and actually my brother as well, who is not in healthcare, but going through all this, we discovered that almost every cancer book out there said, you really need to limit or eliminate meat and dairy. And that became a theme in 
probably six or seven of the leading cancer books that were out there. And so we thought to ourselves, geez, well, if we minimize it, why not just eliminate it from our diets? And, and I'm not saying this is appropriate for everybody, but for us at the time, we thought maybe if we all go largely plant-based, then we might be able to affect the outcome of her disease. Um, now, the unfortunate thing is that my brother and his wife did not really take it to heart. They were more of the mentality, well, if she has limited time on this earth, then why not eat what you want. And so they never really took to it. Um, but the interesting thing is that my wife and I really took to it uh, to the point that we are completely plant-based now. Uh, my wife, who is actually a pilot, got so hard into it that she went to a Forks Over Knives retreat and, and, and really got interested and then uh, went to the T. Colin uh, Campbell um, Institute for Integrative Medicine at Cornell. She ended up getting a degree and now we're really, really into this. Um, and and the one thing that has been fantastic is that now not only do I have sort of a, a, an academic knowledge of nutrition issues, but because we've gotten so hard into it, I have a working knowledge of it. I know how to eat. I know what to tell my athletes because it's not just something I've read from a book. This is something that I live every day. Um, and, you know, one thing that drives my wife nuts is that whenever I hang out with these guys, I always come back and I say, honey. We have to change. We need to work out more. We need to do this. We need to do that. No ideas. <laughs> yes, but 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 the good news is that it's sort of become a symbiotic relationship where you know I, I, I'll say, geez, we need to incorporate more legumes into our diet. Um, and 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 at first, whenever we start something new, for example, the dishes that we make are yeah, not so tasty, not so palatable. But then we kind of figure it out, and then we start making really good stuff. And this is something that. I can take back to the team and I can say, hey, look, you know, if you want to get more chickpeas in your diet, this is a great way to do it. Um, so I think it's really helped um, our family. I think that it's very much helped our team and my ability to help the team. So overall, I think it's just been a fantastic transition. Have you know, I mean, you're I can I can tell from looking at you that you are not a big person um, other than weight loss. Uh, have you noticed any health benefits for you personally in the transition? So yes, so the weight loss was dramatic, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, it's something well, that I did 230 pounds on you. How, how tall are you? And now I'm down to 180. Yeah. And that's not with deliberate dieting. That's just with changing the way that I eat. Um, you know, I, I sat down once and I, and I calculated my nutritional requirements and my energy requirements, and I'm almost exactly where I need to be. Uh, my BMI right now is 21, um, with, you know, 20 to 25 being, um, sort of ideal, I suppose. And, and that's not really with, um, any sort of restriction. In fact, uh, because I'm plant-based, I find myself hungrier more often, which is, I, I suppose, a good thing because I'm really moving a lot of fiber and vitamins and things through my body. Um, so if anything, I'm probably eating more and yet I'm able to maintain a pretty low body weight and stay fi uh, fit. Um, you know, through the time, I, I also noticed, for example, my blood pressure was a little bit, it wasn't high, but it was a little bit borderline. Now it's exactly 
exactly where it needs to be. I'm at like 120 over 65 or something like that. Um, my pulse came down. Uh, my energy level is greater. I feel there, that there's a lot more mental clarity. And, that, and that's something that a lot of plant-based people talk about. When you initially go plant-based, you know, there's, there's sort of a two-week uh, time when, you know, you're experiencing a little bit of gastric discomfort, a little bit of mental fogginess. But when you emerge from that, it's dramatic. I, I feel like um, I, I always tell people it's like, um, you know, when you go to a new country or even just a new restaurant or something, and because it's brand new, you, you seem to take in the sights and the sounds with more mental clarity. And, and that, that's how you feel all the time when you're on a plant-based diet. So for us, it's been just a fantastic transition. Are you actually working with athletes in their nutrition? Have you, have you got a degree in nutrition that you are translating into working, um, a working relationship with athletes? I personally do not have a degree okay. in nutrition. I rely very much on my wife to help me with this. Um, but, um, you know, I, I don't, um, I don't try to sway my athletes into one way of eating. I, I try to give them tips on how they can improve how they eat. Now there certainly are, and especially recently, more and more athletes are adopting a plant-based diet, um, particularly those athletes in disciplines where a lower BMI is favored. Um, it is, uh, it, it is a, a great way to deal with getting adequate nutrition while not being as challenged with maintaining a healthy BMI for your sport, if it is a sport that is favored by low BMI. So um, uh, I, I work with athletes routinely on nutrition. And, you know, when, when uh, a plant-based athlete calls me up, I, I, I'm, I'm just made up because I, I, you know, I feel like I'm in my element and I can really help that person uh, probably more so than, than I feel that I could uh, help people with omnivorous diets because, you know, I've been plant-based for about seven years now, um, going on eight years now. And, and um, I, I, I'm just much more familiar with plant-based eating now. There are a lot of pop-up diets. There are a lot of diets that you can read about on the internet and uh, keeping in mind the young age of a lot of these athletes. Um, and we, we've talked about male athletes a little bit here. Um, I, I'm sure you're working with female athletes as well. Yeah. How do you talk to them about these diets that are popping up um, that are, you know, quoted as being transitional for your health? Are you able to talk to them sort of off of that cliff of jumping onto these fad diets? So it's, it's interesting that you asked that because we, we noticed that um, it's usually the younger, less experienced athletes who deal more with fad diets. Um, they, um, it's, it's typically, uh, for example, a younger athlete who comes into the season a little bit heavy, um, and, uh, they, they, they need to make weight or they, they understand that they need to decrease their BMI in order to enhance their performance. And, and that's where we see more of the fad diets. Um, the keto diet and the uh, paleo diet, for example, are very popular among athletes for rapid weight loss. Um, but what they don't realize is that caloric restriction is not really a great way to address um, decreasing weight. Um, they, what a lot of athletes don't understand is that when you do, for example, an Atkins diet or a keto diet, um, this can actually induce muscle loss uh, as the body goes into what's called ketosis. It's actually a, a starvation mode for the body to not utilize its preferred energy, which is basically carbohydrates and sugars, um, and shifting into 
a mode where they are now consuming fat. And while that does work, it also consumes muscle to a limited extent. So what they don't realize is they're actually working against themselves. The interesting thing is that it's the more veteran and successful athletes that don't do this. They realize that it's much better to maintain a healthy weight throughout the season. And even in the postseason, try to maintain that weight so that coming into the next season, they can optimize performance rather than trying to play catch up with losing the five kilos that they need to prior to, uh, you know, the, the, the start of the training period. So um, we do see uh, fad dieting, but it's really more, I'd say, among the less experienced and the younger athletes. Well, you know, it gets into the minds of kids. Uh, after break, I want to get onto this topic of, of macros. But these, these athletes are training, uh, what, six hours a day, I imagine? Am, am I close? Is it more than that? Their caloric um, the needs must be huge. So to try and uh, be on a restrictive diet and still maintain the calories that they need to get to their peak performance, is that an issue that you face as well? Well, so let, let me just preface that by saying that um, these athletes don't really do any crash dieting in season. This is usually something where, uh, you know, the season typically ends in the mid spring or so. Um, athletes generally have, say, a week, or, I'm, I'm sorry, a week, a month to six weeks off. Um, and during that time, that's when the less experienced athletes tend to be bad about their diets. They, they tend to say, geez, I'm glad the season's done. I'm going to have a bacon cheeseburger now, or I'm going to, you know, eat a whole pack of Oreos. And, and, and it's something because they feel so deprived throughout the season that they go a little bit crazy after the season. And then they come into camp and they're five, 10 kilos over. And now we have to get their weight down just to start legitimate training. Um, the, the issue though, is that that takes a good, you know, four to six weeks for them to lose that weight. So they're clearly behind the eight ball. And by then we're into what's called the summer Grand Prix season. And so they're, they're really doing themselves a disfavor. Um, you know, the good news is that generally by the time the season proper starts, which isn't until uh, November or December in Europe, um, by then they usually dialed it in and they don't really eat like that in terms of fat diets during the season. So by then they've usually dialed in what's going to work for them. They've worked out, you know, new nutrition plans, uh, typically at the advice of one of our nutritionists. Um, so we don't generally see that as a problem in season. Okay, let's go to a break here. We're going to come back and talk to you about macros and how you deal with them on uh, a vegetarian diet. So everyone will be back in just a couple of minutes here. Another heartbreak day. Feels like you're miles away Don't even need no shade When your sun don't shine Shine Too many passing dreams Roll by like limousines It's hard to keep believing When it pass you by And by Yeah, it ain't over yet, so move, keep walking, soldier, keep moving on, move, keep walking, until the morning comes, move, keep walking, soldier, keep 
this yet Hold on, hold on, he'll get you through this Hold on, hold on, these are the promises I never will forget, I never will forget So hold on, hold on, the Lord ain't finished yet Hold on, hold on, he'll get you through this Hold on, hold on, these are the promises I never will forget, I never will forget I know your heart been broke again I know your prayers ain't been answered yet You are listening to The Health Hub, here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're having a great conversation here with Dr. Chen. I want to talk to talk to you about uh, Dr. Chen because I'm sure this pops up so often when um, you're talking to athletes. The idea of protein and macros and how much. Uh, I know when I was working out uh, years ago, it was you take as much protein as you can get. You know, it's it's one point. Well, we're in grams here, but anyways, it was like. Um, well, you, you'll tell me what your, your translation is with the protein amounts, but it was get as much as you can. Every meal, protein, protein, protein shakes, eat meat, eat eggs. And um, studies have shown, and as we evolve, and because I've got into the cancer field, studies have shown that that may not be the wisest pathway to go down. What have you discovered in your own search for health and then in translating this in dealing with athletes at the caliber that you're working with them at? Um, so just to begin with, we honestly don't have a great idea of how much protein is necessary. Um, the, the reason is that unfortunately, a lot of the studies, including major studies from big sports organizations, um, they're conflicted. Uh, they, either the researchers have some sort of vested interest um, or the study is being sponsored by industry. So, so just leading off, we actually don't have a great idea of how much protein is necessary, uh, at least in the elite athlete. Um, we do have a much better idea of how much protein is necessary in uh, quote unquote normal people. Um, the, the way that protein uh, requirements are calculated are, is, is a, a, something called protein balance. And we look at the net protein balance. And the way that that's calculated is we can um, measure, for example, how much protein is being taken in. 
And then we measure in the feces, for example, how much protein is there. And from that, we can determine a person's protein balance. Um, and when your protein balance is perfectly balanced, in other words, you're not net positive or net negative, that's sort of where we uh, believe that people uh, have established a steady state. Um, and the, these protein uh, balance studies have been done since 1957. Um, and in general, what we've discovered is that for an average adult who is not an elite athlete or even someone who trains all the time, um, they estimate that for a man, we should have about 0.8 grams per kilogram per day. Um, from the sports organizations, we um, believe anyway that perhaps somewhere between 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram per day uh, is necessary for endurance athletes. And then if you are going to be someone who wants anabolic effects, that means uh, building muscle or, or gaining size, um, 1.6 to 2 grams per kilogram per day uh, is necessary. Although uh, some studies cite even up to 4 grams per kilogram per day. Really? Um, yeah, yes. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the issue is that uh, there are concerns about taking that much protein, although it still is very much controversial. Um, we're always worried about things like renal damage. So, mm -hmm. for example, if you take in a lot of protein, the way that that's cleared by the body is through um, uh, expelling urea, uh, nitrogen, and that's through the urine. And the way that that gets there is that the protein is absorbed by the body, dealt with by the body, and eventually excreted by the kidney. So there's always concern about renal damage, particularly in elderly individuals who may have some kidney insufficiency. Um, now that I, I will tell you though, that it's controversial. It hasn't been proven either way that that actually occurs. The second major area of concern is with bone density and calcium. In other words, when we take a large protein load, it creates an acidic environment inside our blood and something has to buffer that. And the biggest natural buffer for our body is calcium. And the biggest reservoir of calcium in our body is the bones. And so the thing thinking is that if you eat too much protein in order to buffer that protein inside your blood, you're going to leach calcium from your bones and that may affect the bone density. Again, that hasn't been substantiated. It's more of a theoretical thing, mm -hmm. um, but it's very difficult to do these protein studies uh, simply because of the way that these are measured. So um, for example, when we talk about protein digestibility, the way that we like to measure that in this day and age is to look at what we call the ileal digestibility. So we wanna get samples from the ileum. Well, obviously that's not an easy thing to do. The problem is that when we measure it in the feces, we're actually underestimating protein requirements because of losses from things like nasal secretions, menstruation, um, sloughing skin cells. And so we're actually losing protein in insensible ways that cannot be measured. Um, but so the, the bottom line is um, we probably as a society uh, ingest way too much protein for what the requirements actually are. So um, for a woman, we estimate that it's, it's actually necessary to probably take in about 0.66 grams per kilogram per day. And for male, that's about 0.8. Um, when we actually do measurements of uh, populations, we see that in the United States, we're taking in probably about 1.64 grams per kilogram per day. And in Canada, that's about 1.5. So even just eating a standard diet, I don't think protein is a, uh, a major concern if you're eating a standard diet. In fact, we probably get too much for what mm -hmm. we need.
Do you do any microbial studies? Have you seen any microbial studies and differences in protein intake? And um, I mean, I've read several studies and the reflection of how the microbe, uh, the microbiome changes uh, with respect to plant-based versus um, uh, eating meat. Have you done any of those yourself or read any of those that you translate into your work? Um, I have not done any personal work on the subject, but the, you bring up a good point, which is that there is a difference between plant-based proteins and animal proteins. Um, I, it is, uh, I would say that animal proteins are a much easier way to get uh, complete proteins. Um, a lot of plant proteins um, lack what are called uh, essential amino acids. Um, they also lack what are called branch chain amino acids. And one thing that's necessary, for example, for muscle protein synthesis it are uh, amino acids such as leucine and isoleucine and valine, which really aren't present in um, a lot of plant-based proteins unless you deliberately try. So for example, we know that beans, legumes, and pulses are excellent sources of essential amino acids. Um, and, and in particular, you can get a lot of leucine, isoleucine, valine, and, and others that are limited in other plant-based proteins. So it's not that you can't get it from plant-based proteins. You have to deliberately construct your diet to include those things, um, particularly at the elite level. Yeah, I can see where that would pose a lot of challenges for the elite level, where you are trying to more weigh in on the protein standard, uh, standard diet, standard people, uh, people that are, you know, like me, everyday people, I work out, but I'm certainly not an elite athlete. I think it's well within my grasp to get the amount of protein that I need in my diet. I mean, uh, a good protein powder gives you um, a solid base for the day to, to launch off to get your protein requirements. Have you found, um, as you've seen the transition of more and more athletes to a plant-based diet, have you noticed a difference in injuries and bone structure? Maybe once, you know, if I'm sure there are broken bones that, that you see, um, have you noticed any difference? Um, you know, the, thankfully, no. Um, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because that is probably one of the major criticisms of a plant-based diet that because of relative caloric restriction that we might not relatively speaking get enough energy um, and that may predispose people to what we call fragility fractures mm -hmm. um, the uh, in, in truth though we have not seen a change in that um, we believe that you know the body sort of adapts to the uh, to what it needs to do a lot of studies have been done in bone mineral density for example in plant-based athletes who are young, because that's obviously of major concern in terms of bone development. And we have not seen, it has not been proven anyway, I should say, that uh, that younger athletes who adopt a plant-based diet have increased fractures. That has not been the case. I was, um, I was actually going the other way um, because you were talking about excessive protein and the leaching of calcium. And um, as athletes get older and um, you know, this obviously the youngers don't feel as, as much as the older athletes. I was wondering if those who transitioned to a plant-based diet actually had stronger bones 
Um, you know, I think it's probably too early to tell that. Um, I think, you know, two years ago was declared the year of the vegan. In other words, this is just coming into its own stride. Um, I, I think in 2015, the number of businesses that called themselves plant-based or vegan went up by something incredible, like 30,000% or something like that. So we're really just coming into a different population of athletes who are uh, perhaps more in in tune with their health. Uh, I know, for example, my kids who are 16 and 14, they look at nutrition, they think about nutrition. Whereas at that age, I didn't think about it at all. My, my biggest, you know, thought at that time was how, how can I successfully, you know, get a full bag of Doritos in and, and uh, you know, skip dinner in some way. Uh, but my kids don't think that way. They actually think about these things. And I don't even know where that's coming from. Perhaps it's because the, it, uh, I think nationwide, there is, uh, I think, a more, uh, a greater awareness of nutritional issues. Um, but I feel like that's dichotomous. I feel like as much as there is a population that is more focused on health and nutritional issues, the majority of the population is headed in a wrong direction. So it's almost like we're, we're polarizing where there's a certain group of people who are really into health and, and becoming more and more aware of their own bodies. Um, but thankfully so. Um, I, I think, though, to your point, it, it's it's too early to tell because we're really just getting into the time where, you know, out of a team of 10 athletes, three or four of them will come up to me and say, um, I'm thinking about being plant based or I am plant based. How do I optimize my nutrition? You know, when I started uh, really dealing with plant based issues in 2013, there was one person that I was speaking with about this one athlete and she wasn't even on my team. Um, so it's a different day and age. I think that athletes are much more uh, willing to look at nutritional issues. They understand now how that can affect their performance. And thankfully they're much more responsible about constructing their diets to include everything that they need from an energy standpoint, from a macronutrient standpoint in order to optimize their performance. Well, you know, intuitively, I would think that these athletes, if they're feeling sluggish, if they're, I mean, just, just you and I, and if you're feeling sluggish, if you've had a couple of days where you feel that you're, you're dogging it, um, you would look to your diet or you would look to your calorie um, usage. I would think that these athletes are so in tuned and you yourself are so in tuned with your body that if there's been an excessive training or if there's been a lack of training, you get to that point where you're adjusting your diet and you're able to look at the macros and say, you know what, I, I maybe have not got what I needed or I maybe got too much. And I think ultimately that's what we're trying to do, right, is to get athletes and everybody to understand that we are unique in our own needs and our needs will fluctuate. And I think with what you're doing and educating them on a plant-based diet and the merits of it is giving them a deeper understanding of how their body works. And I think that that may be the largest step we've taken over the years is to show this huge connection between the fuel, the fuel and uh, the output. Is that, do you think, uh, a shift that you've seen? Yes. And in fact, I think it's a very positive shift. Mm -hmm. um, it, 10, 15 years ago, when dealing with these teams, we used to, it was like, it was like pulling teeth to try to get them to meet with a nutritionist. They thought, geez, why do we have to do this? I, I already know how to eat. When in truth, they didn't at all. They were just 
uh, pure talent. Um, and they, I think they understand now that it's a combination of talent, but also effort. And part of that effort is uh, realizing that food which for most people is enjoyable and nutritious and a way to live for them. It's um, a necessity. It's, it's not just food, it's fuel. And they really think of it that way. They think, um, you know, this is, this is down to, for example, uh, timing of meals, you know, when, mm -hmm. when am I going to eat a slice of whole bread a whole wheat bread to optimize my later performance. And, and they time it down to the minute uh, to the point where they'll look at their watch and say, geez, um, uh, it's, it's time for me to go to the cafeteria because I have to fuel anticipating that they're going to have this big cross-country ski effort in three hours. And so it's, it's interesting. It's not just what they're eating that they're focusing on, but every aspect of it, the timing of it. What am I going to do for recovery after my race? So they're not even just thinking of the, the, the race that's this afternoon. They're thinking, well, how am I going to recover in time for the competition tomorrow? So it's, I, I think, thankfully, athletes, even at the youngest level, have taken the responsibility and charge of designing their diets, designing their uh, 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 macronutrient intake um, and timing to match what they need in terms of performance. So I think we're headed in a good direction with that. We're obviously not there, um, but I think in general, whether they're plant-based or not, everyone's paying a lot more attention to nutrition. Well, have you noticed uh, over your years working with elite athletes that talent isn't enough and that records are broken by fractions of seconds versus seconds. And, and that, that minute, you know, the, the details to diet or the details to sleep are really what is jumping one athlete over another. I, I just, you know, I, I don't know this field very well. I, I, but I just, I know like records aren't broken by huge amount of seconds. They're broken by fractions of seconds. And is this, yeah. is this the area that's making the difference? Perhaps. Um, I, I do think that there is some real talent out there, though. Like, for example, when you look at an athlete like Kobe Bryant or Steph Curry or even Bodie Miller, you know, these guys break all the rules. You know, Bodie has just this uh, sort of strange skiing style. He doesn't do anything that, you know, you would teach someone else, yet he was just a champion. It's And for him, I think it was just sheer talent. I think for the 99.99999% of people out there, there, though, these issues like sleep, like habits, like nutrition, they do make a difference. And I think the athletes are realizing that and they're paying particular attention to it because you are right. These races are no longer settled by seconds. They are thousands of a second. And anything that will give you just that one little edge is something that these athletes are focusing on. So it's, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, I suppose in a way you could look at that, that sports are uh, at least at the elite level aren't necessarily done for fun anymore. <laughs> this is uh, this is very much a, a, a career and a business for them. Um, and, and I think in the realization that you can no longer just sort of walk haphazardly into a competition and win it, you know, everyone is focusing on those little things that will give them an edge and nutrition is an important component of that. Yeah, it's, it's, well, you're, and you're setting these kids up for life. Uh, I, I can't see them sweat. I mean, of course, you loosen up when you're not as, as deeply in training, but uh, what you're doing and what you're professing and the life you're living, and obviously the influence that you have over your athletes being such a young age 
are, are going to be profound for the rest of their lives. And uh, whether they know it or now, I'm sure you are going to be looked back as a huge impact on, on their overall health and success. So I congratulate you on that. I think it's a wonderful thing you're doing um, and new. Uh, you don't hear a lot of people in your position professing a plant-based diet when you're dealing with elite athletes. So I find it very refreshing to speak with you. Do you have any final thoughts before we um, end this great talk? Um, well, I, what I wanted to emphasize is that um, while a plant-based diet, I, I don't think it's something, well, I don't profess it in terms of everyone should go plant-based. I think every athlete has to make that decision for themselves. I do think that uh, a plant-based diet has not been shown to offer advantages over an omnivorous diet with respect to performance, although it may have dramatic benefits later on in life, but it doesn't appear to be a detriment. The important thing is if an athlete is committed to remaining plant-based and becoming and maintaining a status as an elite athlete, there's a way to do it. You just have to be um, attentive to it. You have to be aware of it and carefully construct your diet in order to optimize your performance, but it can be successfully done as many world champion athletes can tell you. And more and more. And again, we're talking about individualism. So wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Chen, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Kathy. And everybody, we'll talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.